not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bobble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety a decade ago on my blog Unpickled and in the books that I write. You can find them on my website. I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. Now, let me tell you something. When you are in recovery and you join these online groups and you say to yourself, I don't know, I think I'm really different than everyone else in recovery. I'm not sure I'm like these other people. I don't know about these people I'm going to meet in recovery. I have a surprise for you. You will meet amazing people. You'll make fantastic new friends and from all around the world. And that is exactly the case with my guests today. I met Penny Musa through the online recovery community. She's an amazing woman from Australia, and she joins me today to tell her story. Hi, Penny. Hi, Jean. How are you? I'm good, and I'm so happy to talk to you. It's really cool that we can connect in this way from all around the world to people that would have never otherwise met, and yet because we have this amazing recovery thing in common in our lives here we are. It's amazing. I can't believe it. It's just been such a gift and a blessing to be involved with the recovery community and also to have met you when we were over in LA for the She Recovers conference. It's, it's fabulous, really special. Yeah, I don't know about you, but when I started on this journey, I was very lonely And I never dreamt that getting sober would mean having so many new, amazing connections in my life. It's almost overwhelming, the abundance of people that we get to meet, including you. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Well, I feel exactly the same way. (laughs) Well, I want our listeners to get to know you. You have an amazing website, Recovery Buddha, and you're going to tell us about that. You're going to tell us about your group called the Recovery Buddhas, but first we want to hear about you and hear your story. Thank you so much, Jean. Oh, look, it certainly has been a wild ride. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, that's my dog in the back. (laughs) I have five years, four months, five year mark was like, whoa, (laughs) it was super exciting. All up, I've probably accumulated about 11 to 12 years of sobriety over the years, but obviously that's been in stops and starts along the way. I am married, I've been married to the same wonderful man for 23 years and that's certainly come with its ups and downs, but he is my my rock and my best friend. And I have three adult children. One's 23, one's 21, and the other's 18. And my 18-year-old daughter is wonderfully neurodiverse. She has autism, moderate intellectual disability. So life is pretty full. <laughs> I'm also a practicing clinical psychologist and pretty much specializing at risk adolescents and taking a very trauma-informed approach. 
So, yes, life is full, but I also love my art and I've always been creative and curious at heart. Being an artist has been wonderfully freeing and really it's kind of my go-to, I guess, for, for anything and I make sure I can actually do some painting every day, whatever that looks like. And the wonderful aspect of it being abstract is that I never know what it's going to turn out like and that's super exciting. <laughs> In terms of alcohol, alcohol was never really a big part of my life as a child. The only time I remember until I was about 10 was visiting my nana's house and occasionally there would be on Christmas Day or Easter uh, an occasional sherry or cream de menthe or that kind of thing that the ladies would have. So I was never really brought up in a household where there was a lot of alcohol. Although my my pa, he was a, a bit of a drinker and dad is too, but he eased off on that, which is fantastic. Uh, the first time I remember actually drinking to self-medicate was probably when I was about 16 or 17. I was actually very unwell at the time with anorexia. I'd had a huge argument with my mum and I went to the liquor cupboard and just squeaked out of a few bottles and immediately I just felt this warm, soothing feeling from that. And I think that's the first time I think I actually consciously was aware that this was something that I could use to feel better. Whereas in the past I went through, as most teenagers I guess do this, um, going out with friends and just drinking and it was in the context of, of social situations to have fun so I didn't really connect at any other stage that the drinking was part of um, medicating. My parents divorced when I was about eight and my dad moved interstate up to Queensland up to Surface Paradise and it's a bit of a party holiday destination in Australia and when I would spend time with my dad which was for about four weeks during the summertime we would be out going to dinner parties to restaurants to people's places and I saw and I learned to associate alcohol with being happy, having fun, socialising, lots of laughter and joking around. I'd love sitting at the table with all the adults and listening to their conversations and their antics and there are a few rude jokes that got thrown around. I guess that's what I learned. As I got older, I wanted to join in, so I would have what was called a Clayton's, which I don't know whether they have it over there, but it's a non-alcoholic substitute. And because I was underage, I'd, I'd have my Clayton's and dry on the side to be to feel a part of the group and a part of the, the social atmosphere. And also living in Australia, as many Western cultures would be, I, I guess, there's this real culture about the backyard barbecue and beer and alcohol and it's something that is just so entrenched within the culture in Australia it's what Aussies do I didn't see that alcohol was actually a problem until much later on in life because I always thought that food was the problem from coming from that background of having experienced those eating disorders and the anorexia transformed into bulimia and that was always combined with alcohol use. 
I went through relationships with the alcohol. It led to breakups, insecure attachment. It was just a social lubricant. I didn't realise until I stopped drinking actually how socially anxious I was. I never thought I was, but it's really interesting some of the things that come out when you stop drinking. For a while in my 20s, I did turn to amphetamine use. That was also combined with with drinking. I was daily drinking probably when I was about 23, 24. I completely normalised this until I guess it became unmanageable. But I did the geographical. So in my 20s, I moved from Melbourne to Sydney to marry my husband, but nothing changed. The eating disorder was still active at the time, as was my drinking. That led to some pretty horrible arguments. And I'm looking back now, it was such a time of, oh boy, just immaturity. But I don't say that in a negative way. I just did not have that emotional maturity and stability in my life that I thought I had at the time and was definitely using alcohol to self-medicate. When my parents divorced when I was younger, it was like my whole world fell apart. So in many ways, I was self-medicating for trauma. When I was 15, when the eating disorder stuff emerged, my mum had remarried. And through that particular time, I inherited four brothers and sisters as an only child that was pretty overwhelming (laughs) they were all older than me my stepfather came and lived with us and he was just lovely and I really loved having him around part of me also felt abandoned I think in that situation I'd always been quite an anxious child I felt that my mum's attention to the other kids and then my stepsister moved in with us and she was getting married and all of a sudden I kind of felt like I didn't exist anymore and that there was just so much change and I wasn't able to control everything that was going on. So the emergence of this awful anorexia came through and that was in my final year of school. That was very intense looking back and I can look back now with so much more compassion for that child that just felt so wounded and needed healing at the time my mum and I were always very very close when she passed away which was in 2004 two days after Christmas it was the most horrendous heartbreaking thing to have to go through having to lose her and mum had always been very unwell she had lupus She was very sick for many, many years. And when my parents had separated and being an only child, I I became a carer for my mum and she was quite fragile and I would always look out for her. And so we were very, very close. But there were times when that was was really hard to to watch, to see, to not know what was going on. Mum would have to go into hospital and I'd stay with my grandparents. I guess that led to some anxious attachment there with mum. I think in some ways we were probably, perhaps I was, not so much mum, a bit codependent on her. When I did move to Sydney, that was really tough because I felt like I was leaving her behind. 
But then I got married and moved moved into the Sydney life and had my first child. Then within five years, I had three beautiful children. Unknowns to me through my first and second pregnancies, I did have some postnatal depression that was quite severe and had some therapy around that, which was so helpful and really useful. I didn't drink through my pregnancies, interestingly, but prior to that, I was probably a daily drinker. But when mum passed away, that's when things really got worse. Because my daughter has special needs, I didn't really make the connection, but I did have a couple of glasses of wine a week in my pregnancy with her. And I remember coming into sobriety and and just feeling so much mother guilt, thinking maybe it was my fault. Was it because I drank and had those couple of glasses a week that my daughter is having these struggles? It just felt very heavy. I felt a sense of responsibility. Since then, however, I can recognise that it wasn't my fault, but there are still times when my mind and my heart goes down this path (laughs) a little bit. When mum passed away, because of the lupus, she had to have heart valve replacement surgery. So I was pretty much by her side for the five weeks that she was in hospital and in ICU, other than a week where I had to return home because I had three kids under five. My alcohol use just escalated after that to just deal with that huge loss and grief. And through that time, things in my marriage became worse, I guess. We were both young and emotionally immature. We didn't have the skills to be able to work through some of the anger, some of the resentment. We were both very reactive, angry and abusive towards each other and things were just so chaotic. So I went and saw the therapist. Eventually it was decided, look, I think you need to go into rehab. So that was in 2006. I felt though that it wasn't entirely my decision. I felt that I had been labelled as the problem, in quote. I had a lot of anger about that and a lot of resentment about that and I felt like I was being judged within the family, within my marriage, even by the GP, who was very good. I thought, wow, you know, I'm not the only one here with the issues. There were a lot of dysfunctional dynamics that were happening with my husband and I at the time. Getting sober, I can't talk for him, but I think it was thought that, well, everything's going to be great after I get sober. Things will improve. It's the alcohol that's causing the problems. Things didn't get better. So I came out of rehab. I was able to get two and three-quarter or something years up of sobriety. I did go to some 12-step meetings. I found a women's group to attend, but there were a lot of issues of control and resentment within the marriage still, I fell into quite a deep depression because I got sober at a time where I felt there wasn't a lot of support other than AA. 
or NA. And I just, I didn't feel like I connected with the people, with the messages, even though I would still go and I would sit there and listen. I was probably listening more to the differences than the similarities at the time. I never labelled myself as an alcoholic. So even just standing up and saying, hi, I'm Penny, I'm an alcoholic, just felt so uncomfortable and it felt so limiting because I knew that there was so many other parts of me that I, I wanted to have come through and to shine. But I felt like I was just kind of driving this bus of, okay, I'm the one with the problem. I'm the one with the drinking issues and substance use issues. And I don't think anything else was really looked at at the time. Things became unmanageable, again, in terms of my mood and dysfunction at home. Our household was very busy, having a child with special needs, my other couple of kids as well. I was working in private practice at the time. That was part-time so that I was able to just be with my kids because David was working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So I, I felt a lot of sense of responsibility. I guess that just took its toll. I ended up back in rehab in 2009 and there were quite a few things that happened around that time. I guess I, I want to share it. Part of me wants to share it, but the other part of me is with oh. <laughs> I do believe in honesty and being transparent and what happened around that time was that I was groomed into an extramarital relationship. My husband found out, everything just fell apart. On that day, I attempted suicide and ended up back in hospital. Looking back on that time, it was just so full of angst and so full of pain and the most concerning thing about that was that when I went into hospital after that, because I hadn't been eating very much and I wasn't drinking at that point, but I also had depression and anxiety and so much other stuff going on, they actually put me in a refeeding program in the eating disorder ward. They were only seeing the physiological medical side of things. They weren't actually seeing the trauma side of things. It was just awful. I remember having a stand-up argument with one of the psychologists there just saying, look, you don't know what the hell you're doing. And it's really hard when you are in that profession to be on an inpatient board. I had shame attached to everything and just didn't feel that I was getting the, the treatment or the help that I needed. I needed to be in a really gentle, trauma-informed space. And this was not it. They just didn't get it. And that was really hard. Then I came out and entered a outpatient program. I had the most amazing psychiatrist when I was in that 2009 rehab. And he suggested that in about six months down the track, it would be really good to go into somewhere where they are very trauma-informed and deal with some of these other things, the, the complex grief, the unresolved trauma, attachment issues, relationship issues. I ended up doing that. We had been working through a lot of stuff with a marriage therapist. We were coming out into a much better place and we were working on codependence. We were working on issues of control. We were working on all of those things. And I have to say an absolute credit to him because he recognised at that point that he needed 
to get some support as well. So it wasn't just about me being the problem. It was, okay, well, we're in this together. And that is what made, I think, the biggest difference. So him having the courage to step into that was phenomenal. I really want to honour him for that. Because if he hadn't done that, maybe we wouldn't be together today. <laughs> that was pretty amazing. And and so then I did that six months later trauma inpatient program. And that was amazing. They also had a family week where our partners came and learnt the same stuff that we learnt. That is something that was missing from all the other programs. It gave them everything that we were given to really work on the dynamics and codependence and attachment. And I think it's one of the very few places in Australia that offers that kind of rehabilitation treatment. And it really came out of the models that, I've seen over the years in America, in the States, Australia just seems to be a little bit far behind with some of those things. This is exactly what both of us needed to go into this program and have space and have time to really process the level of grief and the, the trauma, a variety of different things, mainly the grief from mum passing away, but also the grief of and trauma in our relationship and what had happened before. I'm fairly open about that. My children know. I have made amends to my husband and I have made amends to my children about that. I wish it never happened. I also understand that maybe it was some weird necessary evil that had kind of had to happen for other things to move in the direction of healing. Anyway, I think I might just leave that one there. <laughs> we did the the program, the trauma-informed program, well, I did it, and then my husband did that one-week family week. I was moderating drinking through that time, actually, but then I got to the point where I just thought, no, nah, I need to go back in. So I went back into rehab in 2011. It was a, pretty much a self imposed admission so it felt good to make that choice then I had four years sobriety after that I thought at that time oh wow I'm over it this is great maybe I can moderate again I've got these four years up I really think I could go and out I still felt that I was missing out I didn't know a lot of people who were sober I was still felt very isolated even though I went to the occasional 12-step meeting I just didn't feel that I had many connections or people to be able to share any of this with. And uh, I met a friend at work and her and I would chat quite a lot and she would tell me, you don't have an alcohol problem. There's no, there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> so I started moderating again and I did discuss this with my husband and with our, our therapist. And they were, oh, no, I don't think you should do this at all. But then I said, no, look, I, I want to try and see how it goes. I was able to moderate for another 12 months but because I just wanted to feel normal and be able to enjoy the things I used to enjoy before, thinking that's where the pleasure was, having always associated alcohol with having fun. And I thought I was missing out on all of that. It was a Sunday. I was sitting on the front porch with a coffee. I just burst into tears. My husband came out and he said, what's going on? And I said, I can't do this anymore. I just, I just can't. I felt miserable. 
my mood was very low. I realised it was like a light bulb went off that I can't drink, even in moderation. I always wanted more. All I wanted was more all the time, and that was doing my head in. It was always in my thoughts. I had a preoccupation. So on the 19th of October 2015, I decided I am done. I quit. I surrender. That was five years and four months ago. And you know what, Jean? I have not looked back since. Life is just so incredibly different and it's magical. It's full of joy. It's full of creativity. It's it's been an absolute game changer. I've been able to be a lot more present and actually build a sense of self-worth. But this time around, what is different for me is I have connection. I have a solid foundation of online friends and obviously in-person friends. When I got sober all those years ago, I didn't know that there were groups around and perhaps there weren't groups around. The only thing I was fed into was a 12-step program. I'm not knocking 12-step programs. I think they are a phenomenal foundation. However, I know for me that I needed to step away from that. Part of that was my spiritual side that I wanted to explore more, which I've grown up with my mum. With mum was a, a clairvoyant and a psychic healer, and we were in ashrams when I was twelve. Like she'd take me to these amazing places, and so we had a very close spiritual bond. I felt that my recovery needed to move more down that path, but also move out of the shame and the isolation. And I found podcast. I, all I did that Sunday was Google podcasts, books, online groups. Anything I could find, I just immersed myself in it all and I just thought, wow, these people are amazing. They're they're actually proud of what they're doing. They're loud and proud and also I guess because of my occupation, I felt I couldn't tell anybody. You know, there was this kind of stigma of silence that you see amongst whether it's psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors, nurses, if you're in a medical, paramedical field, it's like you're not allowed to have anything wrong with you. (laughs) Or if you do, it's really bad or it's pathologised. And I just didn't feel that I had the freedom to be able to reach out and not feel so isolated. But that's totally changed now and it's such a gift and I'm so incredibly grateful for it and for all of the amazing people in my life that I have today that who are in recovery and those that those that aren't. And so then I moved into starting Recovery Buddha as an online Facebook group. That for me came about because I needed a level of accountability. But there's a part of me that always wants to help. I've always, ever since I was really young, wanted to be able to make a difference in people's lives, not from an ego-based perspective, but just from a healing perspective, helping in some way help others maintain or or gain a sense of self-love and compassion and self-worth. And there's nothing more beautiful, actually, really than really watching somebody go through their own healing journey and, and come out the other side. It's the most humbling thing to watch and it's just such a privilege that I get to do that 
every day with the people that I see through my work and and I love adolescents and young people they are so full of spark and charisma and but they're really struggling there's a lot of kids out there who are absolutely struggling at the moment moving back to to recovery Buddha I thought that is a place where I want people to be able to land safely because there are not a, a lot of places that feel safe for people and I think we need to feel safe and connected to others to start or maintain our healing journeys. Recovery Buddha is a place where there's no promotions or advertising or any of those kinds of things. We keep it very focused on, on the members and the beautiful sisters that we've got on that page. It did actually start out as a, as a co-ed group <laughs> and uh, it was wonderful but then I guess I moved more into making the group for people who identify as women and it's very inclusive. I think that came about at the time because I really love working with, with women. Obviously, being a woman and having gone through a lot of different experiences in my own life, the new thing is, is that we're hoping to move towards sponsoring women in recovery to attend events. I'd really love to be able to offer the women in our group the opportunity to to be sponsored for those that can't afford to go to these things, to have that opportunity. I'm doing it through through art that I'm making and selling and hopefully we might branch out into some other things like T-shirts. That will be on the website at some stage. We need to move towards healing the collective. It, it makes my heart sing. <laughs> it's just that's where we're at today, Jean. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Penny. The more we know ourselves, the more complicated our story becomes. Because had I asked you your story on the day that you went to rehab the first time, you might have said, well, I just drink too much and it's not really all my fault. I don't quite know that, you know, (laughs) but but I'm I'm the problem and that's why I'm here. And as time goes on, I think we start to look back and realize, oh, those things I had going on in high school tie into this. You know, it wasn't just yeah. the drinking. This has been layering on for a long time. Yeah. I find it interesting. And also I'm grateful for your vulnerability that as a clinical psychologist, you're not afraid to tell your truth because we're humans. And these mental health issues, diagnosis, challenges, addiction, all of these things, these affect humans at the same rate, whether we are any profession or not. I I get such a sense from my clients with where they're at and how they're feeling. And it's kind of like an empathic intuition, I suppose, that I pick up. And it's like I can actually feel in my body what they're going through. In many ways, their story has been my story. It has impacted on my work in the sense of developing a strong sense of compassion for where they're at and taking a very compassionate, loving kindness approach coming out of Buddhism, but also just of my own personal understanding of what the beautiful human in front of me needs because we are all human sense of vulnerability and I think it's really important to honor that and to validate I feel that my journey has enabled me to bring 
a deeper understanding and deeper compassion to the work that I do with people. Penny, what are the basics of trauma-informed therapy? I think firstly, non-judgment and really seeing a person, really seeing where they are in the present moment, what they are dealing with, how they're feeling, and helping them feel safe. I think that's one of the most important things and offering a very compassionate space and holding, just allowing them or anyone who express what's on their heart. I also like to use some strategies that are quite, I guess, somatic-based strategies through somatic experiencing. And I mean, we may have some clients do some EMDR or those kinds of trauma therapies, but I think it's about peeling the layers back gently of the onion and really just offering that form of support. And for young people, I guess it's also about helping them problem solve and adults. But for young people who feel powerless in certain situations, I think it's really about giving them a sense of agency in being heard and being able to get the help that they need. I know you have to run, so I'm going to ask you one last question before you go, and that is, what are some things that you do every day as just basics to support your recovery? Well, thanks, Jean. Definitely painting. <laughs> so definitely art. That's I think that's my my healing time, my um, self care time, and just and with that comes it's a spiritual practice for me. Blessing paintings before they happen, <laughs> and just being really mindful and coming back to the present moment. So definitely art and. Essential oils, I use essential oils every day as well as and our, my days are very full with full-time work and then coming home to having to look after stuff at home and family commitments. But I definitely make sure I sprinkle through my day some mindful moments or moments of self-care particularly if it's a very, very busy day. So that might look like just getting outside, getting out of the office, going for a walk, but make it a mindful walk. So really engage in that five senses experience of if it's raining, just the rain on my face or the breeze or the colours of the, the leaves or the flowers and just really making sure that I focus and ground. Also, walking helps with that a lot. We also have a beautiful dog called Daisy. So she she is also my go-to <laughs> during the day. She's just beautiful. She comes to work with me a couple of days a week as a therapy dog. And meditation, as I said, every night when I'm going to, to sleep, I, I do a meditation and that just really helps to just calm down activation through the day through my system I find I do need to do that because I can get into workaholic mode which is something that I'm working on but yeah just those kinds of practices plus reaching out connecting with other people on Recovery Buddha and on other amazing sites and pages that I'm a part of and answering people chatting with people so it's all for me about connection 
mindfulness moments, staying present and really just grounding. And that is kind of my go-to edart, uh, my day-to-day routine. <laughs> Penny, how can our listeners find you and connect with you? The, the, probably the easiest way at the moment would be by personal messaging on Facebook or on Instagram. Also, just through our Recovery Buddha group, that's a private women's group. We also have Recovery Buddha on Facebook that is a general group, so that's a public page. And I usually, I think, direct messaging is probably the best at this point. We will have the new website up with an email and other things shortly. So we're just, we're moving towards that, but yeah. And the Instagram is, I know you have a new... Uh, it's Recovery Buddha. Annie Musa, thank you so much for being here. Oh, Jean, thank you so much. It's been beautiful talking with you. You as well. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on. Just want to be free